in his Turak mansion early on the morning of Sunday the 3rd of December 1854 Sir Charles Hotham Lieutenant Governor of the Colony of Victoria received some shocking news on the goldfields of Ballarat which have been simmering with discontent for months there has been a major clash of armed forces the angry diggers who had erected a stockade on a gold lead known as Eureka, had engaged with the loyal forces of Her Majesty the Queen and fired upon them. While the soldiers have triumphed, it is not without losses. Two privates are dead, and two officers have been badly wounded, one dangerously so, and another 11 privates have injuries ranging from scratches to life-threatening gashes and bullet wounds. The military dispatch also informs him that, while it is difficult to be certain at the moment, at least 30 of the so-called insurgents have been killed, and more have since died of their wounds. Sir Charles is delighted, to be frank, that the pesky diggers, with their petitions, monster meetings, and distinctly un-British ideas of democracy, have been routed. But he's no fool, and he knows the public will not share in this feeling. After all, the public are of the belief misled by those terrible Republican papers, The Age and The Argus, that the diggers were merely protesting against unfair taxation laws, which were being brutally enforced by corrupt police. If the people think he sent the military to rout the diggers just for that, no, it really won't do. But fear not, for Sir Charles has an idea, a brilliant fantastic idea that will prove once and to all that her gracious majesty queen victoria and by extension he as her representative rules in this colony with his attorney general in agreement sir charles directs the magistrates at ballarat to charge those men from the eureka stockade with the most dire offense of all high treason once the men have been convicted and executed, things in the colony will go back to normal, and maybe this will finally impress upon the rabble of Victoria the importance of doing as they're told. Poor Sir Charles. If only he knew. I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Once again, my fellow skeptics, thank you so much for joining me today. As you have probably guessed from my opening, we are going deep on the lead of the Eureka Stockade today. But before we get into that story, as always, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Watharong people on whose lands I am podcasting today and I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. And now back to Eureka. If you're one of my OG listeners, you'll know that I have talked a little bit about the Eureka Stockade before in my very first teaser episode, but I've been looking forward to this full-length episode because there's so much more that I want to talk to you about. This is actually one of my favourite events in Australian history, and while some historians argue that it's been done to death and it's time to retire it, I actually think we're really only just scratching the surface of what happened 
on that deadly morning of the 3rd of December, 1854, and the sweeping changes that it heralded first in the colony and then later the state of Victoria. Now, this is because the Battle of the Eureka Stockade, which is sometimes called the Eureka Rebellion, although I don't think that describes it very well, is one of those events in which the myths have obscured much of the history. The fact that it's called a rebellion is an example of this. It wasn't really a rebellion. The diggers weren't, despite what the government would say later, trying to overthrow the established power structures. They wanted their government to help them, actually. But rebellion sounds cool, doesn't it? And so it allows that seed to be planted. So you won't ever hear me describe it as the Eureka Rebellion. I will always call it the Battle of the Eureka Stockade, or sometimes just Eureka. And because of this mythical use of the word rebellion, this has become a story of good and bad. The downtrodden people ready to fight for their right to a fair go and rise up against the merciless might of the government. And despite losing that battle, they won the war in the end. So goes the mythology anyway. But of course, if it was that simple, I wouldn't be talking about it. Now, before I go any further, if I've got any new listeners with me today, I strongly recommend you go back and check out my teaser episode. It's called Introducing the Skeptical Historian. And have a listen to last fortnight's episode called Gold Fever, Ballarat Bendigo and Beyond, if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. This episode isn't a direct follow-on from the previous episodes, but it will give you some good background about the gold fields and the people populating them, some of whom then went on to fight at Eureka. So if you want to go back and listen, pause this episode right here and I'll be ready when you get back. For those still with me, I'll just give you a very brief overview of the Ballarat gold fields before we get into the story of Eureka. Ballarat was actually one of the richest gold fields in Victoria. And like so many gold fields towns across the world, it was a melting pot from people from, well, from all across the world. Eureka itself, however, was a primarily white affair, with the participants being mostly from Britain, Ireland, the United States, and Western continental Europe. Chinese miners were deliberately excluded from the stockade, despite having similar grievances. And there's no direct evidence of Indigenous participation either, although they almost certainly witnessed it. We do know that there was at least one African-American man in the stockade. His name was John Joseph. I talked about him a little bit last episode. And he played a very active role um, in that affair. And there may have been more. A witness at Joseph's trial for high treason later in 1855 stated that there were a good many black men in the stockade, although we don't know just how many a good many is, and we don't know where they were from. Some, like Joseph, would have absolutely been African-Americans, including some escaped slaves. Remember, slavery was still legal in the United States at this time. But others would have been from the West Indies or Jamaica and other areas. The white stockaders were very fast and loose with where black men came from. Joseph came from the United States. That was very clear. Yet he was still often described variously as coming from the West Indies or maybe Jamaica or this place or that place. No one particularly cared where he was really from. And that was common for all people of color on the goldfields. Now, despite all of these people from 
all across the world, having come to Australia seeking gold, racist tensions were high on the gold fields. And we discussed that last episode. And people generally tended to congregate with others who either spoke their language or who shared their background. This is actually what people tend to do today when they move to a new place or country. The Eureka Stockade took its name from the Eureka Lead, which was an area of Ballarat where the majority of Irish diggers lived. Unsurprisingly, many of these men played a significant role in the Battle of the Eureka Stockade. It's also worth noting that Peter Lawler, who was the man the diggers elected, in inverted commas, in a very rough election by an even rougher war council, had his tent and diggings here on the Eureka Lead. So he may have simply felt more at home here than had he decided to have the stockade erected elsewhere on the goldfields. We'll talk more about him later. What you need to know now is that despite its location and the various government reports that would appear afterwards claiming the contrary, the Eureka Stockade was not envisioned as a de facto Irish rebellion against British misrule in their home country. While these elements did seep in towards the end, And as we'll actually see, they may have actually contributed to the eventual defeat of the stockaders. The primary purpose of the Eureka Stockade was, well, here's where it gets a little tricky. You see, nobody who was inside the stockade at the time could really agree on what its true purpose was. Some argued it was purely defensive, a place to retreat to in the face of violent government license hunts, which we'll discuss in a moment. Others declared that it was a place from which an attack could be launched. Defence lawyers representing the 13 men tried in Melbourne for high treason in 1855 over the affair tried to convince juries that the stockade had been nothing more than a wooden fence designed to protect the miners' private dwellings and their property, while the government of the day insisted it had been nothing less than a formidable fortress inside which a band of discontented rebels plotted to forcibly wrest the colony from the hands of Queen Victoria. In truth, it could honestly be all of these things. But before I get into that, let's have a look at the issues that led to the building of the stockade and why the diggers were angry enough to contemplate armed resistance in the first place. Imagine you're a digger in Ballarat in 1854. By this time, all the alluvial gold near the surface has been stripped away. So you're deep shaft mining with four or five mates. You could be as far as 150 feet, or about 45 meters down, ankle deep in water that is only prevented from rising by your mates above. You are constantly bailing it out with a bucket and rope attached to a wheel. The air down at the bottom of your shaft is probably not breathable either. So you're also relying on these men to keep ventilating air down here with the calico sails designed for the purpose. The only thing between you and drowning or dying in a shaft collapse are the timber slabs stabilizing the shaft walls. And the risk of that collapse is always disturbingly close. You've probably been doing this for weeks, digging down with your mates in the hope you find gold before the shaft bottoms out and you all learn that your labor has been for nothing. Oh, and did I mention that your shaft is only eight feet or about two meters square and that you're paying 18 pounds a year for it? Oh, and you also can't vote. You're barred from standing for political office. You can't buy land to settle on for your family because the land has been deliberately locked up into parcels no smaller than 80 acres and deliberately priced too high for the ordinary man to afford. 
that £18 a year you're paying, which is approximately $4,600 today, has to be paid in monthly instalments of 30 shillings in advance. And you need to pay it to keep legally digging. And if you don't pay, and remember, you have to pay, even if you don't find gold, you can be arrested and imprisoned until someone pays your license and a rather hefty fine. By 1854, there was a proper lockup in Ballarat, but not so long ago being imprisoned meant being chained to a log in the sun with no shade, no food, no water, and not even a bucket to relieve yourself. The high fees for the paltry amount of ground on which to dig was galling enough. But let's go back to our visualisation. It's evening now. You're back at your tent with your mates, sitting around your campfire, eating damper and drinking billy tea, which, let's be honest, is more boiled creek water than tea. You're literate, most diggers are. And you're perusing a paper from Melbourne when something catches your eye. It must be a pretty slow news day down in the city because the paper is reporting that one of those damned squatters, rich agriculturalists who own most of the land and keep the rest of it locked up, has just added another hundred acres to his sprawling sheep run and is mighty pleased with himself indeed. And he only paid... He paid how much? (coughs) Well, we don't know exactly, but we know it wouldn't have been anywhere near the value of the land. Because you see, in 1854 in Victoria, that land that the diggers were barred from purchasing because it was in such large blocks could be brought by the wealthy squatters at their own price. Yes, they could choose how much they paid for the block and they were only taxed £10 per year for their entire holdings. And this could stretch into thousands of acres. They also made huge profits too, given they controlled the lucrative wool industry, which was Victoria's largest export at the time, and they paid almost no tax. And as far as the diggers were concerned, this was outrageous. Now, by this point, you might be thinking, well, Juliana, this is interesting and all, and the way the colony is being taxed is absurd, but I want to hear about the Eureka Stockade. It's okay, of course you do. But we can't get into the battle until we understand what it was that pushed the miners over the edge. The infuriating mismanagement was one thing. But what really caused angst was the manner in which the authorities in Ballarat enforced the license fee. Under law, every man on the diggings had to have his license on him at all times and produce it when demanded by an officer of the law. This could be a magistrate, it could be a soldier, but it was usually a policeman. Goldfields police were astonishingly corrupt and brutal people. As we learned last episode, many men who had been working as police took off for the goldfields in the initial rush following 1851. And the new police officers were, well, they were brutes in uniform. And that's putting it mildly. Many of them were violent ex-convicts. They were known to take bribes and enjoy beating men simply because they could. They received no training and they were back to the hilt by their parliamentary masters. It didn't matter how corrupt they were or what they were doing. The government didn't care. Well, in public at least. Privately, the higher-ups, including the government, hated these men. But they needed police and these were the only kind of people available to do the job. And they were hated by the diggers too. 
as we've said, by law, a miner had to have his license on him at all times. But this just wasn't practical. Gold mining like this, deep shaft mining, and also washing the dirt for gold requires water. Or if you're in the bottom of a shaft, you're going to find water even if you don't want it. And the licenses were made out of paper. And we all know what happens to paper when it gets wet. Men tried to compromise by having their licenses in their tents. But when the police swarmed out of government camp to search for unlicensed miners, a practice known as digger hunting, they weren't interested in following a man back to his tent to see if he had a fully paid up license. If it wasn't in his trousers, he was under arrest. Most of the men arrested in Ballarat for being unlicensed had fully paid licenses, but had made the sensible decision to keep them safely in their tents to stop them from becoming damaged and illegible. None of this mattered to the authorities, and as time went on, they became even more brutal and high-handed. In one particularly notorious incident, a man named James Grant, who had a fully paid license, was arrested and sentenced to two months jail for not having a license. He'd bought one from a man who was leaving Ballarat, and he had been on his way to see the magistrate in government camp and have it changed into his name when a policeman demanded to see it. He was arrested for digging using another man's license. This was despite having only just arrived, just brought the license, not pitched a tent, not made a claim, and having been on his way to get the license corrected. He had not broken earth to dig at this point at all and had no intention to. To make matters worse, when his family and friends petitioned the governor for his release, explaining the circumstances and saying there had been a terrible miscarriage of justice, which there had been, Sir Charles Hotham, who we met at the top of this episode, simply wrote on the petition, put away, and ignored the terrible injustice that had just occurred. This was quite standard for Mr Hotham, and as we'll see, it would come back to haunt him later. But back to the goldfields. This mistreatment was routine, so it is hardly surprising that the diggers were angry. What was more, given gun laws were non-existent in what was effectively the Wild West of Australia at the time, almost every man in Ballarat had some kind of firearm. And the mistreatment of angry, heavily armed men is never a good idea. As tensions built in the lead-up to Eureka, it wasn't uncommon for verbal disputes between diggers and the authorities to turn physical and for physical disputes to turn into gunfights. The government's response was to crack down on the diggers, because that always works, increase license hunts, and step up their brutality. Things came to a head in October of 1854 when the murder of a popular young digger set in motion a chain of events which would end in open conflict. Stick around to hear more after the break. The murder in question was that of a man named James Scobie, and he was known to all as Scotty. He was, unsurprisingly, from Scotland, and he was just 19 when he was murdered in very suspicious circumstances outside the Eureka Hotel. Despite its proximity to the Eureka lead, the Eureka Hotel was not frequented by the diggers and was instead known to be a place where the authorities tended to drink. The hotel itself was owned by a man named James Bentley and his wife, Catherine. Bentley was an ex-convict from Norfolk Island. He was a thief and he was known to be an extremely violent man, not to his wife, but to, well, everyone else he came into contact with. He was friendly with a local magistrate and quite possibly paying this man bribes. 
man named Dews, and Magistrate Dews made sure Bentley's liquor license was renewed every single year, despite the frequent thefts, drunkenness, violence, and even the occasional murder, which frequently took place in the hotel. I've got here a quote from a man named William Carroll, who was one of the first residents of Ballarat, and he would say of it later, it was generally remarked it was a wonder Bentley did not lose his license. The house was of infamous repute. As one of the oldest residents in the colony, I can say I never knew so shamefully conducted a house. The worst character lived about his place. Midnight robberies were frequent and life and property were not safe. So it might seem strange that a magistrate would be prepared to take bribes and keep a hotel open from a man like that. What else was he being paid? Well, most historians are of the opinion that it wasn't just bribes Bentley was paying to Dues. Dues was most likely a silent partner in the whole venture, and that would explain his willingness to ensure it remained constantly operational. Another one of Dues's tricks was to cancel the liquor licenses of Bentley's competitors or refuse them to other men who wanted to open hotels trying to eliminate competition. There were other hotels in Ballarat, of course. The Eureka wasn't the only one. But if you wanted a liquor license, you wanted a different magistrate than magistrate dues. It should also be noted that building the Eureka Hotel cost about £30,000. So that's roughly $8.7 million or so today. And that was money that Bentley absolutely did not have. However, magistrate dues was a wealthy man and did have that money. So it's believed he put it forward and was given part ownership in the hotel as a result. Now, because of the uncertain circumstances behind James Scobie's death, there are multiple conflicting accounts. However, the version I'm going to share with you now is the one that is most commonly accepted as being correct, and it's based on the evidence at the time and witness testimony. So Scobie and a friend from Scotland had run into each other on the golf fields and they'd been drinking heavily throughout the afternoon. That evening, they decided they were going to have one last drink and stumbled up to the Eureka Hotel where they could see a light. The hotel was closed and Bentley didn't want to let the drunk men in. And at this point, that's reasonable. One of the men outside, either Scotty or his friend, insulted Catherine Bentley and the pair left, heading back to the diggings and probably thinking nothing of it. Minutes later, the Bentleys, accompanied by four employees, left the Eureka Hotel. James Bentley was seen to pick up a spade, which was leaning against a nearby tent, and they quickly caught up to Scotty and his friend. There was a physical altercation in which both men were badly beaten, and someone struck Scobie on the head with the spade. He hit the ground and died quickly afterwards. There was uproar following this incident. A coronial inquest was held, and despite there being witnesses who testified they had seen James Bentley, his wife, and their employees attack Scobie and his friend that night, an open verdict was returned. James Scobie had died from a blow to the head, but who administered the blow was unknown. A few things to note about this inquest. Firstly, it was conducted by Magistrate Dews, the same magistrate who made it his business to ensure that Bentley stayed in business and who may have been a silent partner in his hotel. Secondly, 
against all precedent and in violation of the laws at the time, Bentley was allowed to cross-examine witnesses himself. And the final rusty nail in the rotten coffin of corruption was that Bentley was allowed to speak to the jury after they retired to consider their verdict. He was later seen chatting with the foreman and the open verdict was declared shortly afterwards. Now, this open verdict came because the jury could not unanimously agree. The majority of jurors actually felt that the evidence against Bentley was overwhelming, it was compelling, and they wanted to return a verdict of murder. But two jurors, including the foreman, who were later seen in the bar of the Eureka Hotel, disagreed. Surprise, surprise. Bentley was let off. And if the diggers had been angry before that, well, now they were murderous. On the 17th of October, 1854, just five days after the joke of an inquest, which saw Bentley exonerated, things reached boiling point. Frustrated by the authorities' refusal to do anything about getting justice for the murdered Scobie, and hardly sick of being so poorly treated in general, the diggers exploded. Thousands of miners surrounded the Eureka Hotel and declared their intention to hang James Bentley from his own lamppost, among other horrible punishments. A stone was thrown, breaking a window. Then another. And another. Bentley and his family did manage to escape, much to the fury of the diggers, but they soon soothed their feelings by setting the Eureka Hotel on fire. And throwing any other piece of Bentley's property they could get their hands on into it. Now, they did release any animals in stables and pens before setting the place on fire, and servants and staff were allowed to collect their own property from the hotel, which is something, I guess, although I'm not sure I can really be in favour of setting private property on fire. Attempts were made by police and a detachment of soldiers to put the fire out, but the mob just proved too large and the authorities could do nothing but watch as the Eureka Hotel burned to the ground. In the face of this shocking act of violence, two things happened. One, Sir Charles Hotham, Lieutenant Governor of Victoria, realised something had to be done to calm the situation at Ballarat. On the advice of his Attorney General, he ordered the arrest of James and Catherine Bentley and one of their employees who was most strongly implicated on the charge of murdering James Scobie and had them sent to Melbourne to face trial. This also came on the back of another employee coming forward with information. Bentley and his employee were later convicted of murder while Catherine Bentley was acquitted of all charges for a lack of evidence. The second thing that happened was that the government decided it needed to reassert its authority on the goldfields. Things could not go on as they were, and if these dangerous diggers had their way, they'd be demanding full independence from Britain before too long. Sir Charles had every available soldier in the colony sent to Ballarat, roughly 400 men, and wrote to the authorities that they were authorised to use every means available to them to enforce the rule of law and crush these democratic uprisings. But the thing about democracy, it doesn't tend to respond well to being crushed. And that was as true in Ballarat as it was in anywhere else. 
What was also true in Ballarat was that there were more diggers than there were police and soldiers, even with the reinforcements having been sent up from Melbourne. This posed a problem for the authorities in Ballarat. As things stood, they were outnumbered around 25 to 1 by the diggers. And if those diggers chose to storm the camp, as they had been discussing and indicating that they might, then the camp was likely to be overwhelmed. Ultimately, of course, even well-armed civilians with high numbers tend to come off second best when they attack soldiers. But with such high odds, it was not going to be an easy one battle. Now, some people argue that this is completely irrational. The diggers were not going to attack the camp. However, I don't think it was an irrational fear on the part of the authorities. In the weeks leading up to the 3rd of December, 1854, the diggers had begun to organise themselves into a rough military. Not long after Bentley and his employee were arrested and sentenced, which did please the diggers, something happened that actually made them pretty mad. A few of them were arrested over the fire. Now, what happened is a bit awkward because the authorities actually didn't care who they arrested. They effectively just grabbed some random diggers and charged them with arson. Now, all the diggers who were charged had been there when the fire was lit and had participated, although at least one man who was charged, his only participation had been to try and put the fire out, yet they were still sentenced to jail. And this effectively became the straw that broke the camel's back. This was where the diggers decided that the only way forward was by force. They built their stockade. They created their own flag. The rough war council that I mentioned earlier elected Peter Lawler as the commander in chief. They swore an oath under that flag. And then things started to get... I suppose you could say interesting, although ultimately it led to armed conflict. They made weapons. They drilled with pistols, pikes, rifles, shotguns and swords. They formed companies. They conducted armed parades through the township and they forced shopkeepers who were not already supporting them or who were just generally neutral to hand over arms and ammunition to aid in their fight. And this is where the story of the Eureka Stockade really starts to get tricky. Initially, it had been built as a place for the diggers to retreat to if the authorities continued to conduct violent license hunts. That was its initial purpose. But as the days wore on, it became increasingly apparent that things were heading in an alarming direction. As I said, there were no gun laws in Victoria or even wider Australia at this time. They wouldn't come till many, many years later. And lots of storekeepers sold firearms and ammunition. It was just something that you needed to have on the gold fields. And most men owned some kind of firearm. And there were plenty of men who had guns, but weren't really interested in an armed uprising over the license tax and over their poor treatment. Not that they agreed with the way they were being treated. They just didn't really feel like facing off with the redcoats over it. That didn't matter to the stockaders. A lot of the men who had guns and didn't want to be a part of their affair were pressed into service in the stockade or just had their weapons stolen. Two brothers who owned a pair of handguns worth about 30 pounds, so very expensive, very good weapons, were told either to join or hand over their guns. Given the value of these weapons, they agreed to join, but very reluctantly, and managed to get out of the stockade before the battle commenced, which was fortunate for them. The stockaders also stole horses 
from many of the civilians on Ballarat and storekeepers who demanded payment for goods that the stockaders were helping themselves to were very badly assaulted and often had their things just taken. Now, you'll remember I mentioned a man named Peter Lawler at the top of this episode. He had taken charge of the mass of diggers and had been elected as commander-in-chief by a very certain group of men who called themselves the War Council. Now, Lawler is going to get his own episode. He is far too complex a character to do justice to here. But the important thing to note for our purposes today is that he was an excellent orator who had no combat or military experience whatsoever. Now, in terms of the things the stockaders were merrily stealing, he had his men write receipts for the storekeepers and civilians who were being robbed at gunpoint and thought this made everything okay. Of course, his committee and his war council had no money to speak of, no way to pay for these things they were taking, and no intention of doing it either. What was more, the violence was quickly escalating. I'm going to take another break here, and when I get back, we're going to continue on this very fascinating journey. And we are back. Now, most of the diggers on Ballarat, if not pretty much all of them, were absolutely in favour of abolishing the licence fee, unlocking the lands, and doing away with systems which rendered them second-class citizens in their new country. As we've seen, quite a few were prepared, at least in theory, to fight for this, these rights with violence. However, there was quite a strong moral force element on the goldfields, led primarily by John Basson Humphrey. Now, moral force people believed also in fighting for their rights, but believed that once you take up arms, you lose your moral high ground, and it is important to always maintain the moral high ground. So they believed in strategies like petitions, lawsuits, and eventually elections and representing people in parliament. Now, there was a split between the groups that favoured physical force under Peter Lawler and against those that favoured moral force under Humphrey. And it would, of course, eventually be the physical force people who built the stockade and raised the famous flag of the Southern Cross. However, even among the physical force men, there was discontent and division. And many of them were fighting for different things. Abolishing the license fee? Yes, they were absolutely in favour of that. But by the time things got to a boiling point on the 2nd and 3rd of December, a rather disturbing thing had happened. Now, one of the men that I mentioned who had been pressed into the stockade to stop the stockaders stealing his guns asked Lawler what the aims were. He himself was in favour of abolishing the licence fee, of a better systems of taxation and of ending police corruption. Lawler's aims? And the reply he gave this man, independence. Independence? From Britain? Oh, no, we did not sign up for that. Now, as I said at the top, the Eureka Lead, where the stockade was built, was a predominantly Irish area. 
many of the people there had been involved in or knew about the many uprisings and revolts against British misrule in their own country. And there were quite a few ex-convicts or children of ex-convicts who had been transported to Australia for participation in those uprisings. For many of the Irish on the Eureka Lee, the idea that they could split Victoria from the violent and oppressive class of Britain and create their own independent land was incredibly popular. But as I've also said, the Eureka Stockade was not an Irish rebellion. It was made up of people from all over the world, people who had come together against unjust treatment and unfair taxation. They were not in favour of any sort of independence from Britain. And many British men there were proud of the place they hailed from. As for those who had come from outside Britain, they didn't see themselves as subjects of the Queen anyway. So we're not going to lay down their lives in an uprising against a monarch they didn't believe had any control over them. That was not true for all of them. There was quite a large party of Americans who saw this as the Australian War of Independence and decided they were going to be part of it. But we do know that the Eureka Stockade lost quite a few fighting men who heard that Irish independence had crept into the movement and decided they weren't going to participate any further. And so this drilling and parading and arming started to die down and men drifted away as the stockaders got further and further from the original aims that they had sworn allegiance to. Thousands of men dwindled to hundreds. And as days passed with no movement from government camp and its force of soldiers and police, the diggers came to believe nothing would happen. Surely the government would have attacked by now if they were going to do anything. They had hundreds of soldiers up there. And after all, redcoats weren't known for hanging back and watching. So the hundreds in the stockade dwindled down further. Late on the evening of the 2nd of December, a Saturday, there were barely a 100 men left in the stockade. And everybody was certain there would be no attack on the Sunday. Even soldiers had to observe the Sabbath, after all. But the soldiers had been observing something else too, the stockade. The difference between the armed angry diggers in the stockade and the soldiers up in government camp was simple. The latter were trained military men. Now, government camp was also very lucky to have a man named John Wesley Thomas, who was a captain of the 40th Regiment, one of the two regiments stationed in Ballarat at the time. And he was an extremely experienced officer and an excellent tactician and he was in command of the military forces up there now when he had first arrived at government camp he had discovered it had some defensive weaknesses and it had these fixed and looking at the lay of the land he had ruled out any kind of full frontal assault or attack on the stockade the ground was not conducive for it and his forces were likely to be slaughtered and this was agreed by the other two captains stationed in Ballarat at the time Henry Wise and Charles Paisley. So Thomas came to the conclusion, supported by these other two men, that a night attack was the best course of action. The soldiers would be able to get as close as they could before being spotted. And he was now also aware that that Saturday night, the numbers in the stockade had dropped and the odds had gone 25 to 1 against him to 3 to 1 in favour of the troops. And as Saturday night rolled into Sunday morning, he knew one other thing. The diggers were not expecting an attack today. 
So what Thomas saw was a sleeping enemy, one that had been planning to attack him, but which was now depleted in number, off guard, and expecting a quiet night. It was too perfect an opportunity to pass up. And in the 21st century, there has been an unfortunate tendency to view this as cowardly. What kind of soldiers, people say, sneak up on unsuspecting men in the dead of night? But what we need to remember is that the diggers were armed, they had been speaking openly about attacking government camp, and they had the numbers to do it. The early morning attack on Sunday went well for the military because they picked conditions which worked in their favour. Soldiers all across the world in every conflict since the dawn of time have done this. It's called good tactics. This was not an attack on sleeping civilians. It was an attack on a heavily armed enemy that had made their presence known and had made their belligerent intentions clear. Now, I do want to stress that doesn't make it right. The diggers were not asking for unreasonable things. And quite literally within months of the clash on that Sunday morning, everything they had been requesting was legislated. The military should have never been sent in, to be perfectly frank. And had the authorities been able to look past their classist ideas and attitudes, the situation could have been resolved very peacefully. Sir Charles realised this on the back of the armed clash when he first heard the reports, as we heard in the immersion at the start. And that was what drove his decision to charge the diggers that he could with high treason. He reasoned that as long as the public understood that it was the diggers who were at fault, his response would be justified. The choice to charge with high treason is an interesting one because there had not been a successful conviction for high treason in 30 years. And Sir Charles was perhaps a bit overly confident that everyone in Melbourne was on his side. He had received a deputation of squatters earlier in the day after hearing news of the attack who had assured him that they would support him in bringing law and order back to the colonies. And like many men of his class and his time, Sir Charles just assumed that the ordinary population would fall in behind the wealthy and powerful. As we have seen in Victoria, this definitely wasn't the case. And Sir Charles's attempts to justify the overreach of the government's response and their previous inaction failed spectacularly when it all went to trial. The juries in Melbourne, appalled by the government's decision to set soldiers on men who had merely objected to a poorly enforced tax, refused to convict anyone. Of the 13 men tried for high treason in January 1855, all of who, apart from one, had been inside the stockade and played an active role in the combat, not a single one was convicted. And that one man who had not been inside the stockade was tried on the basis that he had been one of the instigators, which was true, although not high treason. Sir Charles was sacked on the back of these ridiculous trials by his political overlords in London, and he died just months later as the acting lieutenant governor, awaiting his replacement from England. But it was on the back of these acquittals that the Eureka myth also started to grow, along with that word we discussed at the beginning, rebellion. Those who had supported it, including Peter Lawler, who had been at the front of it, started to downplay it. They suggested Eureka had been nothing more than a bit of a scuffle, a little skirmish, angry men letting off steam. And when they were challenged, became defensive and said that everyone had been supportive of what they were doing, had known what they were getting into, and had been prepared to fight for their rights. 
Those who had been against it and those who had been pressed into service in the stockade pointed out the huge loss of life and property that had been caused by the stockaders' decision to engage in an armed confrontation. We don't know the exact death toll from Eureka, and we never will. It's estimated to be at least 30 and possibly as high as 60, and that includes diggers, police, soldiers, and civilians. Many of the civilians who died simply had the misfortune to have erected their tents in the area where the stockade was later built. I will also state clearly here that there were instances of soldiers and police simply murdering civilians in the aftermath and then claiming they had been part of Eureka. Now, today, this would be recognised, quite rightly, as a war crime, and it should have been back then as well. There's no excuse for war crimes, and that is clearly what the actions in the aftermath of the Eureka Stockade were, but there's also no excuse for the leaders of that movement to wash their hands of it, take no responsibility for what they have played a part in, and just just walk away from their decision to lead men to their deaths. The reality of Eureka is that its original aims were good, abolishing an unfair tax, allowing people to settle on land if they didn't want to dig for gold, giving them a voice in their government. These are all good things, but it got lost in a deadly fever dream of glory that was brutally taken apart by a skilled military operation. It was a well-intentioned, but poorly executed madness. And it came at a massive cost. Perhaps that's why it lends itself so well to myth-making. The survivors of the tragedy were those who stayed well away when the bullets started flying. So they built their story of heroism on the graves of better men who couldn't answer back. It wasn't until after Peter Lawler's death in 1889 that one of those men who had been pressed into the stockade felt able to tell his own story. And he painted the whole affair in a very unflattering light. But he was one of the few to ever speak up against the idea that Eureka had been something glorious. And I think we could all all do with re-examining the way we think about this conflict and the lessons within it. People deserve to have a voice, and if you try to silence that voice, they'll push back. But it is very easy to create a false narrative in the aftermath of any violent clash between two armed foes. Eureka wasn't about good and bad. It was about one armed side coming out on top of a highly anticipated battle. The political consequences of this are another story altogether. So just remember, it's easy to think that good and bad are real positions to hold in a battle like this. But really, if you have two sides with weapons, with different intentions, has that ever ended well for anyone? Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about the Eureka Stockade or the people who participated, I recommend you visit Ballarat. They have preserved much of their wonderful Goldfields heritage. Start at Sovereign Hill Outdoor Museum. Set aside a whole day. It's amazing. And then make sure you also have time on your trip to visit the Eureka Centre, which is in the place where we believe the stockade was, although we're not quite sure anymore. It was a wooden structure that got burnt down. Now, you'll find heaps of information there. At the Eureka Centre, you can also find what remains of the original Southern Cross flag, which was the flag the diggers swore their oath under, which I talked about in my very, very first episode. If you can't make it to Ballarat, don't worry. There's heaps you can read online. Start with the Sovereign Hill Education blog and you can work your way outwards from there. And next time on The Skeptical Historian, 
We're heading to Queensland in the 1960s, to the coast off a regional city called Mackay, where the wreckage of Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 538 was discovered about five hours after it disappeared from radar in heavy fog. What's to be sceptical about following a plane crash? We know what happened, don't we? The Skeptical Historian is research produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. And the bibliography for this episode is available by going to my website and clicking on the blog post, Unearthing Eureka. You can find me online at www.skepticalhistory.com, that's skeptical with a K, or by searching Juliana Bias on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software License Agreement, and Pixabay, used under a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Links to all Pixabay sound effects can be found on my website. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was used under an Epidemic Sound individual license. Podcast hosting is by Fusebox. See you next time, skeptics.